Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Manchester is Red podcast for the Manchester Evening News. As you know by now, the midweek special, the Rough and Ready podcast. I'm Rich Fay, joined by Samuel Luckhurst this midweek. Uh, Samuel, why are you on the midweek show today? Why aren't you on the uh, Friday show? You- I know, well, there, there's been a rotation this week. Uh, I'm, I'm the Anthony Marshall of the squad. I'm, I'm not appearing in a, in, in a couple of match days. Well, he wouldn't appear in any match days these days. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm off for... For a few days after today, um, I will be making the trip to, to Luton. But uh, yes, so uh, the unforeseen circumstances enforce my absence from Monday. So that's why I'm I'm here with you with the the midweek one. It, there's the, there's there's some midweek action from from Manchester United this this uh, half of the season, despite no European competitions to play in. I suppose. Yeah, on today's podcast, we will take a look at the Ineos deal, how close that is to completion. We'll take a look as well at United's plans for Old Trafford. But Samuel, there is only one place to start, and that is United's search for a sporting director. Now, I know you wrote two months ago now that Dan Ashworth was the one that Ineos wanted to to have on board. What is the latest on that then? Do you think Dan Ashworth will become part of United's project, or do you think there's still a long way to go? There could be a long way to go in the sense of his uh, his his gardening leave, which is what uh, Omar Barada is, is tending to his garden at the moment before he becomes the chief executive of United. Um, that, that's a phrase that's just you know ex- exists in business. It, it's a period of um, it's an interim period where essentially the the uh, someone who's about to switch to to another company uh, of employment they they they're put on gardening leave so they can't join them straight away because of sensitive issues or what have you. But it has got to the point with Ash, with Ashworth where I, I would be surprised if he's not the the, the sporting director at United. Um, he's, he's got a relationship with Sir Dave Brailsford that stretches back um, a number of years, in fact. He invited Brailsford to, uh, to give a speech to Newcastle players during their pre-season camp in, in Lisbon back in 2022. And what I was told was that uh, Ashworth is—he's not just you know the the front runner for this role. He is—he is Ineos's only choice. They've not bothered touching base with any other uh, prospective candidates because they want him that much. And he also wants to to join United. And you'll have probably seen the stories from um, the story from from Luke Edwards and the Telegraph this last night, this morning that you know Newcastle are you know fretting that they they'll they'll lose him. And I, I can imagine Luke probably got. A more explicit steer as to what what what's actually happening, but of course, you 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 know, headlines are altered to accurately reflect a, a story. But it sounds like with with Newcastle, there is an air of resignation that they're they're bracing themselves for a formal approach from United, which you know I expect will come sooner rather than later because they've been very prompt. The, the Enios group have been very prompt in. Uh, you know, selecting Omar Barada, taking him from Manchester City, he'll officially start as chief executive in in the summer. And I suppose the the only difficulty that they have is that because of the timings, and normally January is the time where you finalise your shortlist for targets in the summer transfer window. There's a possibility that Ashworth won't actually be um, be involved in that recruitment strategy. He can obviously be be holding dialogue with with Brailsford and can give United pointers uh, while he's while he's, as I say, tending to his garden. Um, but it's you know it it would be another statement of intent because he's he's one of the best in class. He's possibly the best in class in terms of 
sporting directors. Just had a message on our. Uh, we have had a message, I should say, on yes. our uh, FA confirmation group. Well, there you go. Ties, ties working, on. isn't? Yeah. <laughs> Breaking so news I'll, in the midweek podcast. Yeah. Samuel will uh, delegate that to Tyrone Marshall. That's the beauty of our setup here, where you've got people to jump in as and when. Because, like we said, we'll get onto it at some point anyway. That you know, this is a news. peek. This is a peek behind the curtain, isn't it, for, for for listeners how it rolls? But yeah, this this is definitely the benefit of, of four of us being um, privy to information that United are, are giving us. But yes, as it says, it says uh, confirms the FA approval has now been received. Uh, so it's, 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 it is becoming like one of those tedious transfer stories where you make that step forward, another step forward, another step forward, and everybody knows those steps are always going to be completed. I suppose, it's just yeah, I suppose the, when... the question is, Samuel, we've had Premier League approval from the owners and directors test. We've now had FA approval of deal. What is the next step um, for Ratcliffe? Is it just going to be formal formal announcement? It says, remember that that can't happen. This represents another positive step towards completion, but remember that cannot happen until after the tender offer closes at the end of this week, which is to do with uh, the shares. And there was a press release earlier today about um, a deadline on the Class A shares. I think that Ratcliffe is... I mean, you know, a lot of these SEC filings, they are... They are gobbledygook, but essentially they are they're on schedule. We we were told, obviously, in the press room last month that the regulatory approval was due to be in early to mid February. That has happened. We we are literally in mid February, so uh, everything's on schedule. And from what I've been told as well, it's it's likely that Ratcliffe will start to engage more with um, supporters through um, United's own channels through the press as well from late February, early March onwards. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a fascinating time to be, it's always a fascinating time to be covering Manchester United, but especially the, at, at this period where changes afoot, there are going to be some, some extremely, um, you know, some eye-catching changes. Uh, there's going to be a change in structure. What's the ch- change in transfer strategy going to be? What's going to happen with Old Trafford? There are so many questions to, to ask and hopefully we'll, um, We'll be getting answers in due course. Yeah, remember that the, that tender offer closes at 11.59 on the 16th, and that is US Eastern time. So, you know, there needs to be clarity that. But yeah, like you said, by the end of the week, that that will be done. And then I suppose that is interesting as well, Samuel, before, you know, we'll get a bit onto Ashworth again in a second, but it's going to be really interesting once it is ratified, and that's the buzzword we've been hearing lately, what Ratcliffe will do because you know he he has said hasn't he he said that open letter what Christmas Eve that he wants to be able to have open discourse with fans but it has to be at the suitable time he joked of us when we met him you know prior to that that match last month that he said you know as long as they don't find anything dodgy on my CV they haven't found anything dodgy on the CV it has been approved but do you think that there's going to be a sort of do you think he'll be open and have like a proper sit-down interview or do you think it'd be more so that he sort of speaks off the record in terms of what what he plans to do for United? Well, I, th- I expect he will engage directly with supporters. I mean, even Joel Glazer did did an MUTV interview when the, the Glazer family completed their takeover. He, he vowed to continue to communicate with the supporters. He obviously didn't do that. He has not done that. The, the only times they've they've really heard from him have been when they've been watching him on the off chance they've been watching him um, when the Tampa Bay Buccaneers 
got to the Super Bowl and won the Super Bowl uh, back in 2021. He was on British television screens actually, you know, uttering words and there's the odd YouTube video of him again um, talking about the Tampa Bay Buccaneers with journalists in in in, uh, in the United States which of, of course he has never done with us and I think in terms of you know, siblings of the Glazer family and how many words have they actually spoken to to us journalists over the last um, 18, 18 and a half years you could probably count on one hand two hands at the at the very most so I do think Ratcliffe will engage. I mean, obviously, in terms of off the record briefings, there's a reason why they're off the record. You don't, um, you don't, you don't allude to them. You don't um, even, you know, discuss them openly, whether they are going to happen or whether they are happening. But again, from from what United have, have indicated, it does sound like that um, Ineos and Ratcliffe do want to communicate with us, and and that was apparent when he he came into the press room. Um, Back, uh, just just before the Tottenham game last month, uh, it, I, I don't think it really went. I say according to a plan. I mean, it was it was due to be informal, and obviously it wasn't. It was very formal. It wasn't wasn't choreo- it? Yeah, it wasn't choreographed like like when Ten Hag came into the room for the first time for his press conference, and they they asked certain members of the press to that there was a front row um, seat reserved for you. And we thought, Oh, that's, that's very kind and didn't think anything else of it. And you know, when I go to a press conference, I, I just tend out of habit to sit at the front row, but it was because Ten Hag, want, they wanted Ten Hag to be introduced to the, the, the regular and the, the, the dedicated correspondents with Ratcliffe. That didn't really happen. I mean, one, there were too many people in the room. There were some people in that room who, who shouldn't have been in that room. They just essentially followed the pack and there were probably, I don't know, 10 more people, present then would have would have been ideal there were you know multiple people from multiple organizations to which to to, uh, to like it was it was too much really it was um like it was you and I there from the MEM which I think is is fine I think two per, per organization fair enough and you're you're a regular on the patch I'm a regular on the patch but there are people in there who barely have I don't think I've ever seen them at a United away game, never mind a pre-season tour. And I think that was probably best encapsulated by um, the image of of our colleague Neil Custis sat in the front row because I think he would have much preferred uh, a smaller audience as well, but it didn't work that way. And then I think the, the, the strategy of just peppering him with questions that he was never going to answer, it, it made him clam up, which wasn't ideal because he had no intention of being... You know, speaking openly in there or addressing those questions, but the, I mean, I I threw him a softball question of like, when was the last time you were here? Because I thought that's that's interesting, that's colour, that's that's inoffensive. But some some questions. One question was about their January transfer strategy, and I just thought, well, he's not going to have any bearing on that whatsoever. And also, everyone knows you know I just aren't going to sign anyone. It was a, and he's also said it's going to be informal. Yeah, exactly. And, and it yeah, completely but, like, sort of throws him under the bus because, like you said, the whole it was like placing an online an online fan in there who's obsessed with transfers and them just blasting out, what are you doing about the January transfer window? And I just thought, well, he's, he's not going to bite on that. No chance. So um, it was, it was a, it was a bit of a peculiar, but pleasant introduction to him. And as I said, he, uh, it's, it's a shame he, he clammed up because uh, someone told me that he was, he was a bit more, um, uh, he was, he was a bit more candid in the in, in in the director's lounge, which you would imagine he would be as well. He's surrounded by people that he knows, or he's trying to get to know people. Whereas on this occasion, he's in a room full of journalists who 
already before he came into the room there was a bit of um a bit of bartering over what the embargo time was going to be which uh you know kind of kind of sums up our industry but uh it was it was right to put a, a time on when it was all going out uh, rather than just having you know any old tom dick or, or or harry tweeting uh tweeting live from in the room like we say going back to ashworth as well samuel i mean it's been clear from the start though that they want to have best in class are you even maybe a bit surprised yourself by barada and if ashworth comes off as well that one because it's one thing to say we want the best in class but to actually do it you know fair play that is that is something completely different it's it's a statement of intent and you're you're only going to win admirers when when you when you do that and and in ashworth he he ticks pretty much every box in that he's he's overseen managerial appointments at different levels of um of, of club i mean it was it's easy to forget that he was at west brom before he went to the fa and i think he oversaw the appointment of I think it might have been, it's, it's easy to forget it, but Roberto Di Matteo um, was in charge there when he got West Brom promoted and then they rather ruthlessly sacked him midway through the 2010-11 season, I think it was, brought Roy Hodgson in. Hodgson was doing a really good job and then England came calling just over a year later and I've, I've not looked it up, but it, it doesn't, it, it feels quite natural that Hodgson would go to England and then that same year, Dan Ashworth follows him from West Brom to the FA, so it's possible that Hodgson might have recommended him there, but he was starting to make waves. Gareth Southgate was very complimentary about his his role in, in essentially, you know, um, you know, rebooting England as a as as a as a force on the um, international stage again, and the fact that you you over, you look over the last six or seven years, England have won, I think, the under-17 World Cup, the under-19 World Cup. They've won the under-21 Euros last summer. They've got to a World Cup semi-final and a European Championship final. And and Ashworth did lay down a lot of the groundwork for that. He, he's not been involved in the coaching, of course, or the selection process or identifying who should go in goal or what, what formation should it be or which playing personnel, but he was in Russia for the uh, 2018 World Cup and, and Southgate valued his input and his his influence at the FA. Then, of course, he went to Brighton and Brighton had become a model club in in the top tier. They're, they're a club that a lot of clubs aspire to be and you just look at the recruitment hit rate during that time, plucking players who most most supporters, most football followers would not have heard of and then selling them at huge profits. I think in just... I think I think Trossard, Cucurella, and Caicedo were signed for something like I think it was about. I'm just looking at the figures there. I think it's thirty five point four million, and they were sold for um, fees rising to two hundred and four million pounds combined. It's, it's an obscene amount, but it's it's also great recruitment. Um, you know, identifying these players in in territories not not necessarily in the case of Trossard because I think everybody was aware that you know Belgium had had this it had this hotbed of talent for a long time maybe not so much recently but Trossard's still been a really really good Premier League player um Cucurella, okay you know Spain are very good at producing left backs but Cucurella was not someone who was a was a household name but Brighton still decided to sign him for just over 15 million pounds and then they end up selling him for 62 million pounds to Chelsea and of course United wanted him on loan in the summer Caicedo is just one of the you know great finds and of course United did want him decided not to 
bother um, parting with the cash for him and okay it's it's gone pretty badly for him so far this season at, at Chelsea and you know but, but Brighton are, will have been laughing all the way to the bank because Chelsea decides to part with a British record sum for a player who whenever he played against United he was mustered let's face it he he seemed to be the best player in the park every time he came up against United and I think that was three or four occasions he was he was terrific and he, he would have been a, I still think that under the right manager and the right structure he he would be he would be a brilliant player for for any side Chelsea of course a, a quite a dysfunctional side and then bring it to Newcastle now when he joined them in 2022 I think that deal was agreed in the January or the February and he officially started in in June because of the whole gardening leave and you look at the signings they've made Isaac why were United not in him in for him? Why weren't other big clubs in for him? I remember uh, pitching a an opinion piece on Isaac, and Liam Corliss told me not to write it because of his goal record oh, really? for Sociedad. Yeah, just throw him under the bus. Our uh, our former colleague. Yeah, yeah, we're we're more than happy to do that. To, to it's <laughs> midweek. We can do what we want. We can do what we yeah. want. It was rough, rough and ready indeed. <laughs> uh, but Botman. I think he only costs just over thirty million pounds. He's going to be worth at least double that. Uh, but Anthony Gordon, I was never really particularly. I thought he was a decent player at Everton, but he's become a very good player at Newcastle. Harvey Barnes, I always liked at Leicester. Unfortunately, he's had a, a an injury that's um, you know seen him miss quite a lot of uh, games this season. But I think he he's a quality addition to Newcastle squad. The four bats they've signed, Livermento and Lewis Hall. I don't know why Lewis Hall doesn't get a look in, especially when it's Dan Byrne who's starting ahead of him. But really smart signings, looking at the homegrown talent pool, not necessarily going for the ones who are at the very top tier of it, but ones who could be at the top tier of it in a few years' time. And they've got a stable manager and a stable structure to work at at Newcastle. And it's it's paid off. I mean, they finished fourth last season. And, and even just, I mean, Nick Pope, of course, was is an established keeper when they signed him. But as soon as Burnley got relegated, Newcastle decided, you know, this possible loan deal for Dean Henderson is bound to be complex. It's bound to drag on. Burnley have gone down. They're going to need the cash. Why don't we just pay £10 million for a goalkeeper who, OK, he's, a, he's four or five years older, but... If he's going to improve our defence and, and our clean sheet record, then why not? And of course, that's that's paid off massively. And you, you've seen the, the the strife they've encountered this season in in the in the process of you know do they stick with Marty Dubravka's replacement? Do they try and look at the, the the free agents out there? Because of course, De Gea was mentioned to replace him. There was an element of panic stations, and there were certainly panic stations last season when he was suspended for the League Cup final. So they have not got many wrong. Uh, in, in recruitment Newcastle since Ashworth went there the one black mark of course is Sandro Tonali who's suspended for um, breaching betting rules in, in Italy and you could say well should Newcastle have been aware of that did they do enough due diligence I think you can give them a pass on that just because of the sensitive information and how many people in Tonali's inner circle would have been aware of it as well Right, that is all for part one of the podcast. Just a little plug as well now, that Tyrone Marshall has 
done a feature with FC United. They are actually in European competition in the second half of the campaign, unlike United themselves. So that will be on our social channels, maybe even on the podcast hour this week or next as well. Keep up to date on the Manchester Evening News for that. A really interesting insight and feature into lower league football around the Manchester area not just sort of nitty-gritty domestic games, but a team who are playing in European football. And of course, what the uh, change of ownership at United could mean for for them as a club, because obviously they were founded on the back of the Glazer takeover of Old Trafford. So does Sir Jim Ratcliffe arrive and change anything for them? That's Tyrone Marshall with FC United. Joining us after the short break, we will take a look at... United squad and how it looks shaping up for the rest of the season. Get Samuel's verdict on Old Trafford as well and there's also a little treat for our Irish listeners Welcome back to the Manchester is Red podcast there and Rough and Ready midweek podcast Samuel you've done a line on United's 16 core members of the squad obviously that's something that Ten Hag spoke about earlier this season as well that, that he wants that sort of consistency within his selection what do you make of, of that right now because I know we were speaking yesterday and a couple of his bigger signings perhaps aren't part of that sort of core group it's, it's certainly a, a piece rather than a line but it's it does remind me of three years ago when I got a, um, a couple of passive aggressive messages off someone at United on behalf of um of, of Jesse Lingard for saying he wasn't part of the core squad and they read it as me writing up a story when I actually had written up a piece and it was on essentially a 23-man squad that Solskjaer settled on. And let's face it, Lingard wasn't part of it because he ended that January transfer window being loaned out to West Ham. So it did rather render the complaint moot. But I just thought it was an interesting... And Ten Hag has said it a couple of times this season, but he said it more... He, he said it after the West Ham game about 15 or 16 players that you can essentially depend on. And he was talking, of course, after Martinez's injury. So I think there was an element of um, a certain wistfulness about him because he he had his strongest players available for two games, uh, only two games in his whole time as United manager. And it didn't even last the second game because of Kufal um, going down, you know, putting his pressure on, on Martinez's knee and his knee buckling. And unfortunately for him, he's he's out for eight weeks. And then Luke Shaw, who is, is far too injury prone, has another complaint and has to come off at halftime against Aston Villa. But given their importance to the team and how much better United are with both of them in it, you, you're not going to say they're not part of the 15 or 16 players that Ten Hag is looking to turn to on a weekly basis and and can count on. And so I think if you were to look at it as the starting 11 against Wolves and West Ham as being his best 11 at the moment, and I don't think that's up for debate really. And then who are the maximum five players who who supplement them? Well, Maguire is, is, is definitely one because he's done quite well this season. Uh, when he's come into the team, he was he was named man of the match on Sunday and I thought that was a pretty fair shout. I'd have given it to Diogo Dallo. <laughs> I, say it, I say that with a smile, given the on-running joke, the in-joke we have on him. But, but Maguire was, he certainly got eight out of 10 for me in the player ratings. Uh, McTominay, of course, has to be in it because of his match-winning exploits this season. And then I think it has to be Johnny Evans, because he's already played 20 games this season and 
He's he's on the bench most weeks. He's he's coming on in a lot of games as well when United need to see them out. Lindelof, although he's been absent for um, he was absent for a long time, he's come back in and he was the defender that Ten Hag turned to to come on for Luke Shaw at the weekend. He, he could have turned to Evans, but I think we all, when we saw that Lindelof was warming up, we knew that well he's he's going to be coming on for um, a, a centre back or a left back given that he's played at left back this season and in fairness to him before he did require groin surgery he'd started in 14 out of 19 games for United it, it seems like however often United recruit a centre-half in the summer Lindelof always gets a fair share of games that season he, he always puts himself um, he's always in the reckoning he's never on the fringes I think the only season at United where he's not broken um, the 30 game mark was in his first season which was obviously a difficult one and he was having to adapt to it and, and he made some quite high high profile mistakes and he, he just didn't seem he, he certainly wasn't instantly ready for, for Premier League football he did need a year of um, of adaptation there and the, the fifth player I, th- I thought although he's actually not played for over a month would be Christian Eriksen because he's one of Ten Hag's men and uh, again he's, he's involved in most matchday squads and there have been times when Ten Hag has logically turned to him uh, this season whether it be during during a game as he did against Copenhagen when they won and, and Ericsson was excellent assisted Harry Maguire or they lose at Tottenham and the next week you know they're coming up against Nottingham Forest you know they're going to have a lot of the ball Mason Mount's injured so logically it's Ericsson who's got to come in because he's someone who's going to keep the ball in a game where you know that United are going to have a lot of possession I mean there, there are obviously some very notable names there but you can't put Anthony among those players. He's, you know, I, I thought that, I don't think anybody thought just because he scored and got an assist against the League Two side that that was going to be a turning point for him or, or a breakthrough. And it was it was interesting that in the next game against Wolves, he was dropped and Rashford was immediately restored to the starting eleven because I think a lot of United fans would have probably stuck with Anthony out of principle after Rashford's jaunt to Belfast but Ten Hag put the team first and this was the first time he could literally play his strongest side. So he prioritised that. Rashford scored after five minutes and it was a it was a hell of an evening and it should have been should have been hell of it should have been a much more comfortable evening for United because they played their best football and they threatened to throw it away, but in the end it it ended in, in that uproarious manner with with Kobe Manu scoring a ninety seventh minute winner. But Anthony doesn't get in. I mean, that was that was the last night we really saw him have meaningful minutes, and he contributed to Wolves' third goal, turning attack into defence. Because when he gets the ball, he's still in Neredivisi mode. He hasn't got it yet. I've seen Amari Forson play a handful of times, and he's probably played ten minutes of first team football, and he's got up to speed a lot quicker in a month than Anthony has in eighteen months at United. You can't have Mason Mount among those players because we've not seen him since what was it November the 11th he's been out for three months and he was out for a month uh, between August and September and he's not done anything for United really by and large apart from a League Cup game where Crystal Palace turned up and, and waved the white flag you can't have Amrabat in it uh, I know he came on very late on again to shore up the win the weekend but he was he was absent for a long time and although he obviously went off and t- he, he was he's been on um AFCON duty with Morocco 
I also did get the sense that maybe he was prioritising um, his his international commitments because he missed a couple of games that he could have been available for before that with an injury, United told us. Um, they didn't specify what injury was, but we see this happen before, that if a, if a player has a minor complaint and there's a major tournament coming up, they're not going to risk themselves and they're going to you know prioritise the major tournament coming up, which has ha- happened since time immemorial and it's not it's not exclusive to united but that is a bugbear with me because united do have this tendency of signing players who are far more invested in their national teams than than for for united themselves and i've i've leveled that that criticism at harry maguire and and luke shaw before as well it's it's it, it's not a territorial Ferguson, thing whatsoever yeah, yeah, I'd be saying right. You're 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 pulling out of this squad. You're you know we, we need you for the game in in two weeks' time. Uh, the the classic Fergie one was when an England squad was announced in I think it was August or so. It was it was back when you had these. No, it wasn't the August friendly. I think the squad was announced in August, but it was for the September friendly um, against Portugal in two thousand two. And Paul Scholes was uh, he he wasn't included because. Uh, because he was injured. United then had a game two days later uh, on the Monday night against... It was two or three days later on the Monday night against Middlesbrough. And who should appear in the starting lineup? but Paul Scholes. So he's not in the squad, then he plays. And then he did have... Um, I think it might have been a hernia operation. And he, so he was he was, de- he was definitely injured, but it was, it was just the timing of it made it look like he couldn't be bothered for England. Uh, but that was, you know, that, that was part of, of Ferguson's genius. So, um, yeah, that, that, that piece you, uh, you, you mentioned earlier, that is on the site this morning. And I just thought it, yeah, when, when Ten Hag mentioned it the other week, I just thought that's, it's quite interesting that he's, he's whittling down the number of key players to, you know, a, a, a core squad essentially. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of managers would talk about we've got a top squad of twenty five and they're all important. Blah blah blah. And that's that's clearly not the case with Ten Hag. I mean, you know, I, I'm sure there are a lot of United fans that would like like Ahmad to be considered important. We'd like to see Ahmad get more minutes. He did quite well when he came on at Forest. Um, but it's it's pretty clear that under Ten Hag, he's not he's not seen as a really important member of the squad he's he's there to to make up the numbers they've got a very thin attack and at the moment none of them are, are getting injured and that's just as well because if one of those players drops out there's not really a sterling alternative to to turn to um and certainly not an alternative that's that's going to enhance that attack if it would be it would be weakening it and of course that's not the case at liverpool or, or, or manchester city and again it's another Word of warning to any of our readers, check at the top of the page to see if it's an opinion or not, because that often does uh, it maybe affect your feedback, shall we say, of, of how you receive a piece. Some some of it is opinion, some of it will, will be fact. Um, Samuel, I was going to, there's a note here that says, rebuild or renovate Old Trafford. Do you care to discuss that? Do you have an opinion on Old Trafford that, that's new, that's refreshing for our listeners? What what would you do with it? Or are you just bored of this? <laughs> I Look, I think it's it's an in, it's an interesting topic, but it is a topic that has been done to death, and I have probably um, well, let's let's stick the final nail in the coffin then. So yeah, I I mean, my I would I'd go with uh, a rebuild job for a logistical reason for logistical reasons as much as sorry for symbolic reasons as much as logistical reasons. I think um, 
I think it would actually probably suit Jim Ratcliffe as well that, you know, he's, 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 he's a 71 year old man, but he's going to be remembered what happens in the last 20 or 25 years or however long he lives of his, um, you know, the, it's, it's the twilight of his life that he's going to be remembered for because he's about to essentially assume major control of what happens at, at Manchester United and, um, what what happens with Old Trafford is going to be a really big part of that because they do need they need a better image of of Manchester United and look we've we've both discussed before we we love going to Old Trafford when we emerge into the into the light as poetic as it sounds you still get a buzz of just seeing a green football pitch of seeing resplendent red seats that are empty you could stare at that site for for hours on end and it never ceases to amaze how many football figures go into that stadium and they just look around, they look around it, it, at it in awe. I remember Paolo Dybala when he came over for, um, with Juventus tweeting about it and when Ralph Rangnick was showed it, you know, he was just kind of like silently looking at it in, in approval because it's it, it's an illustrious stadium. It's It's got the history and as I said, it will always retain that aura and I still think a new Old Trafford can have that aura because I've, We've been inside the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Um, I've, I've, you know, I've been to the Wandering Metropolitano, uh, Atletico Madrid as well. I'm sure it will be the case when Barcelona's new stadium is is built as well that that will stir the soul of of, of Catalans who, who who go inside that. I don't think you're losing anything by knocking Old Trafford down because there's only one thing of it that exists from from the wall, and that's the wall uh, in in the tunnel between the dugouts. Everything else there has been installed or is new or is different. Um, you know, there, there's not a seat there from the 1950s or when the Busby Babes played there. Almost all of it is new. It's just been you know, it's been renovated, of course. It has to be on the site. From what I was told, they have the footprint to build a new Old Trafford whilst playing in, in the existing Old Trafford and then moving next door, as Tottenham did. If you can do that, and it sounds like they can do that, and there's there's also other land around there that they could buy up if they want a bigger footprint, and you're not beholden to um, the existing site either. It's not like oh, there's the ticket office, we can't touch that. They've already said that you know that that can move and that can be a fan park um, there because you know that at most grounds now there seem to be fan parks and you. Old Trafford doesn't have a dedicated one of them. I'm not a big fan of them, but clearly they're a good money maker, and there there are a lot of fans who. Somebody want to told go me there. you wouldn't be a fan of them, actually, Samuel. I don't know what it was. I just can't imagine <laughs> you rocking up to a to a fan park pre match, getting a hot dog, listening to listening to to bad music. Yeah. I mean, there are very few good songs about football anyway. But it's it's really weird when you go to Anfield now, and there's that fan park because that part of Anfield used to be quite it used to be extremely earthy. It felt a little bit nasty as well. It was part of the, it was, it was part of the the brilliance of Anfield. In fact, in that it had, it that, had that that had that edge exactly, absolutely, and it doesn't now. It's it's like it's like going to Disneyland, and I've, I've been to Disneyland. I like Disneyland, but I don't want to go to Disneyland when I I go to the football. But we have to accept that from the you know the, the, those who want to make money out of it, who who want to generate more revenue and maximise it, that is that is an open goal for United. Um, so yeah, g- going back to the point, I, I'd I'd have a rebuilt Old Trafford, but obviously on that site, not relocate it. And in, in the words of 
someone quite high quite high up at United, they they told us that there was no chance that they'd ever play at City. Uh, so, although that person is is not is not a decision maker now, um, I, I still find that very the, the, the possibility of United you know relocating to to the Etihad on a temporary basis, I I, I cannot ever see that happening. Now, we did mention, didn't we, at the halfway uh, stage of the podcast, that it will be a special treat for our Irish listeners. Um, Samuel, we've been given the task by producer Seb to name the top five Irish players to ever represent Man United. Now, obviously... I'd, list, I'd listed a top ten, actually. I'd, I'd gone, had you? I'd, okay. I'd, I'd overdone it, clearly. I'd done too much Well, you research. can go with your top ten if you want to, because like I said, there'll be... It depends on your era as well. And obviously, you're more, you know, you, you obviously know the, the heritage of the club better better than most. So I can't just be saying John O'Shea for number one, can I, um, with my sort of blinkered visions? But uh, do, you wanna, do you want to uh, sort of run us through your your top 10 then and give a little brief, maybe a couple of words of why of why they deserve a place? It doesn't necessarily have to be in a top 10 countdown order, but just a, a list if if you prefer. I, I will do my I'll do my utmost, but this is of course this is Republic of Ireland and Northern Northern Irish players rather than um just one from one of the countries. Uh so okay, at ten, I've gone for Johnny Evans, which I hope doesn't offend too many people. I think given that he's he came through the Academy, very cultured player, um, did extremely well in his um in his in his certainly his first breakthrough season, no way oh nine. Uh, under Ferguson and I know he had a pretty rocky time after them but he, he came good again the 2012-13 season when they won the league and he's gone back back there this season and he's had some he's, he's produced some t- terrific performances I mean he's, he's well exceeded expectations um, going back there after being released by Leicester he's already played more games than last season and of course he's he's contributed to title winning Manchester United sides and uh, they they won a couple of cups with him in the defence as well. I think he he might have started in um, he certainly started in the two thousand nine League Cup final. He might have in twenty ten as well when they beat beat Aston Villa. I'm pretty sure he did in fact. So he's at ten. Um, nine. I've gone with Johnny Carey, which uh, uh, yeah, unsurprisingly I was not around for his era between nineteen thirty seven uh, to fifty three. He was the captain of the the team that won the the FA Cup in nineteen forty eight, uh, you know, immense longevity. So I thought that would be like a historic inclusion. Let's say not very familiar with him, but you know, there's there's that great image of him uh, aloft the shoulders of his teammates when they won the cup in in forty eight after they beat Blackpool. Eight, I've gone with Tony Dunn, who is one of the handful of players who've played more than five hundred games for Manchester United. Starts in the European Cup final as well, and uh, when he passed away a few years ago, there was a, a banner put up for him in, in Old Trafford. Uh, I think it was during lockdown, so supporters weren't present, but they still met, went to the effort of producing a banner for him. And if if you're earning a banner, um, wh- whether you're alive or whether you've passed away uh, at Manchester United, I think that's testament to the service you gave the club and and uh, the ben- and, and how much the club benefited from you. At six, uh, Liam Whelan, of course, was one of the Busby babes who um, perished in the in, in the Munich air disaster. Who, by all accounts, from the historians who were were fortunate to to watch that amazing team, would have been 
would have been a terrific player as as most of those players who um, who, who died in Munich were. So I, I, it would have been remiss of me to have omitted him from the list. Then I've gone for Harry Gregg, who, as one of the poems last week, uh, when uh, his his greatest saves were in the Munich air disaster when he was pulling his teammates out of the wreckage and you think what that man went through um, the trauma of that and then he goes back to Manchester with Bill Folks and he's just resuming the day job as if as if nothing has happened it's obviously that was how that generation functioned and it would be extremely extremely different now but there, there's a passage in Eamon Dunphy's book A Strange Kind of Glory where um, I think Greg he 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 tells him about tying. He had headaches um, after the crash, and he tied a tie around his head to try and um, to try and reduce the pain. It turned out that he'd fractured his skull. It just hadn't been diagnosed. I mean, it's just like, heroic doesn't cover it. I mean, he's he's probably on the list as much for what he did at Munich more than what he did um, in, in in the slushy snow at Munich than what he did on the on the pitch for United. But to still, as I said, to, to still continue playing for the club. And to to give them that service uh, was was exceptional, and you know there's, there's a reason why he's he's so fondly remembered. And uh, he, of course, he was at the memorial service in 2018 when it was the the 60th anniversary. In terms of the countdown, in terms of the top five, Sammy McElroy, the last of the Busby Babes, gave United great service, helped them win. Uh, the FA Cup's part of a very vibrant period in United's history. Um, rocky at times, of course, when they got relegated in 74, but you know, fans who were around for that season in the second division, 74, 75, had a great time touring the country, touring different grounds, and McElroy was at, at the heart of that. And, of course, he scored in the FA Cup final in 1979, the, the five-minute final. Uh, the hat-trick against Wolves on the day, Brian Robson was was paraded as well. So, uh, when he when he signed for, signed for the club on the pitch, so that's he gets in the top five. Then Norman Whiteside. Um, I'm, I've just realised I've I've probably dropped a clanger in omitting Paul McGrath from this list entirely because he's given what a natural talent he was. But as I said, I wasn't going to please everyone. Uh, Norman Whiteside, yeah, the 85 goal alone, uh, just one of the greatest goals in United's history uh, against Everton in the in the FA Cup final. Scored in the 83 Cup final as well. Magnificent goal against Arsenal in the '83 semi-final at Villa Park. I'm, I'm probably not. I'm probably doing him a disservice. And there, there will have been other occasions where United fans really buzzed off of the sight of him representing the club. Uh, even coming on at Anfield with United, I think three-one down and a man down, and maiming John Barnes and Steve McMahon, and in, I suppose illegally inspiring a, a comeback to get a three-three draw. In 1988, which resulted in Gordon Strachan scoring at the cop and doing the the cigar celebration, so Whiteside has to be a top five. Then it's Dennis Irwin, who is 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 the best best left back I've seen play for United. Uh, right foot, left foot, brilliant in defense, in defense, brilliant in attack, brilliant at set pieces, extremely consistent performer. Played for United for what was it? 12, 12 years he was there and and for the majority of them he was a he was a certain starter probably between from when he signed from when he joined for from Oldham in 1990 to when I'd probably say not, maybe not his final season but at least 2000 or 2001 
he was he was never present in that back four. And uh, I think in terms of when you compare him with, or not compare him, but obviously Patrice Evra was part of part of a brilliant United side. I'd say Evra probably did reach more heights. I think there was a period where Evra would have been considered the best left back in the world, and maybe you couldn't have said that for Irwin. But Irwin was far more consistent than Evra. Evra had a fabulous four-year period. I'd say Evra's first four years at United, he was superb. His last four years, I don't think he maintained that consistent performance level, whereas Irwin did over pretty much a, a 10-year period. He was he was such a good player and, and probably still still underrated because he, he there was there was no fuss about him he was just a he was just a terrific professional second keen uh probably the one possibly the club's greatest captain just uh maximized every skill he had uh great passer obviously he was he was combative but he he set the tone that united side and Players danced to his tune. If they didn't dance to it, then he was he was going to chase, ch- um, give them the run around. Uh, it's it's difficult to say anything new about Keane in terms of his his influence on that team and the Herculean heights he he reached. Uh, everyone talks about the the semi final against Juventus in in ninety nine, and, and and rightly so. I think he gets a bit wound up by it because he, it's in, in his words, he was he was that that was his job. That was what he was what he was supposed to do. What what was he what was he supposed to, he, he the way he looks at it is like what what was I supposed to do? Just like you know, feel sorry for myself and and, and not not perform well. Uh, you know, Ferguson was in awe of that performance back when you know they had a they had a much better relationship, but. He he went into a team, and the other thing I'd say about Irwin was that Irwin was part of two great United sides. Ever was part of one great United side, and that was the same with Keane. He was part of two great United sides: the ninety three ninety four team, and of course the ninety eight ninety nine side. And um, again, testament to his his greatness, he probably had his had one of his best seasons after the treble season when he he was named the PFA. Play of the year, and fortunately for United, he he signed a new contract in the December December ninety nine. Uh, he was he was just you know rightly adored by by the fan base because I think he he played with a tenacity that if if a fan had a chance to play for Manchester United, they would like to think that they would play like Roy Keane. So there was a lot there was something very relatable with him, and of course number one it it has to be George Best, who's probably the most probably just the most talented uh, footballer that's that's ever played for united i think this whole thing about who's who's the club's greatest player i think there's a difference between a greatest player and a greatest footballer because a lot of people would say well it's it's bobby charlton because he he won the ballon d'or he won the world cup he played um, he, he played for a longer period for united than than best did he scored more goals um was he a great servant he, you know he didn't have as there wasn't as much mither with with Bobby Charlton as there were with was with with Best because of his um, his alcoholism sadly and uh, some of the disciplinary issues he encountered as well. But in terms of a, a pure natural talent who was a showman who was a maverick, but also was a seriously extraordinary footballer who also won the Ballon d'Or and scored a winning goal in the European Cup final and really contributed so breathtakingly to the, the, the resurgence at united post munich um that there's a reason why he's he's 
he's I, I, I hate, I don't like using the word icon. I think it's so overused. It's, it's dreadfully overused. But he is an icon, like Pele is, uh, Cruyff, Maradona. And he's part of that that pantheon. He, he is one of, Best is one of football's demigods. And uh, he's my dad's favourite player, so I am a little bit biased. But, it, you know, it, you only have to... You'll have to go back to when he passed away in 2005 and his funeral being broadcast live on BBC television and uh, the, the, just the the outpouring of grief at Old Trafford. And I, I don't mean this disrespectfully at all, but there were, you know, the floral tributes f- for Best were far were more widespread than they were for Sir Bobby Charlton. I'm not looking to, you know, say he was revered more than Bobby Charlton, absolutely not whatsoever. But because it was such a human tragedy with Best passing away at 59, I think it was... It, it hit harder than it did when Sir Bobby Charlton passed away, given that he was he was well into his eighties and um sadly had been diagnosed with, with dementia as well. Uh but but best like you only have to YouTube him and just watch the way he he struts on a football pitch and players like Best and, and Charlton, Dennis Law, could they hack it in this day and age? Of of course they could. You know, they'd they'd have had to have had a a little bit better conditioning, but in terms of their football ability, it's yeah that that transcends uh, generations and tactical innovations and whatnot. So there you have it. George Best is the best for Samuel, the best Irish player to ever play for United. Let so, us yeah. know. Apolo- apologies to Paul McGrath because that that might be one that um, leaves some listeners' ears burning. Maybe Jerry Daly as well. He had a great penalty record, but I was, you know, I, I've, I've probably shot myself in the foot by naming ten when I'd been asked to name five. I'd have I'd have got away with more in that case. Yeah, you've you've outed yourself there by by having such high standards, I suppose. But like I said, let us know if make a Samuel's list in the comments below. Let us know as well if there are any nations or even regions, maybe positions on the pitch that you'd like us to have a stab at trying to uh, to put in an order. Whether you want Samuel to do 10, 11, 5, let us know all that as well in the feedback below. A reminder as well that the podcast will be back on Friday, looking ahead to United's trip to face Luton Town in the Premier League. And we'll also bring you all the latest on the takeover that happens between then and now. Samuel, thank you very much for joining us on the Midweek Podcast. Thank you, Rich. And thank you once again, wherever you are in the world. Like I said, we'll be back next uh, later this week to look ahead to Luton. Keep your eyes out for Tyrone Marshall's feature on FC United. Please leave a like and a review if you haven't already. And we will see you again next time. 